The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, glory to you, Lord Christ. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they could entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples, along with the Herodians, to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion because you are not swayed by appearances. So tell us this then. What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus, being aware of their malice, said to them, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And so they brought him a denarius. And he said, whose inscription and likeness is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they went away and left him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired Matthew to record these words of Jesus. We believe they had power for this day, and so we ask you to open this word to us perhaps as never before. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to make an impact on this world for good. I want to make an impact on this world for good. And so do you. I want to make an impact on this world for good. But how? There's a baby born on the side road in rural Nigeria. So rural, so alone, that this mother had to cut the umbilical cord with a sharp corn stalk that she found in the field next to her washed the baby in rainwater, and the mother didn't even name the child, so worried was she that the child would not live. But at the local clinic, she was given a name, Ladi, which means Sunday, because that was the day she was born on. This baby grew, and as a young woman came to know the Lord, and she decided to change her name. She said, I don't want to be called Sunday anymore. I want to be called Gloria because I want my life to be offered to God in such a way that he gets all the glory. And so Gloria continued to ask herself, how will I give my life to the Lord so that it can glorify God? She was the second woman in northern Nigeria to attend seminary. When she was there, she married a priest. She ministered to women but kept asking, how would she glorify God by giving her life up in service? How did the story go? Well, you'll have to wait till the end. I want to make an impact on this world for good. But I'm often too busy with other things. I'm too busy distracted with other things, often important things, but the focus gets to be on those things. You know that phrase, you know, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans? I think that could be modernized to 
2017 with life is what happens when you're busy playing on your iPhone. We get so distracted, so focused on things that may be important, but are they truly what is going to make an impact in this world for good? You see, in this text, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the Herodians and the crowd with a dialogue that causes them to all sit up amazed. They're amazed by what he says. You see, verse 15 says that Jesus, uh, the, the Pharisees went to Jesus with the desire to entangle him. That's the word, entangle. It means entrap. They were going to set a trap for Jesus. But the trap goes terribly wrong. The trap closes on them. Jesus turns it around, and by the end of the text, the last verse, verse 22, it says they marveled when they heard this. They marveled. And and the word marvel is an important word for Matthew because he only uses it up to this point to describe Jesus' mighty deeds of healing. But there's no mighty deeds of healing in this text, and yet they marvel. Just to give you an example, Matthew chapter 8 They marvel when he calms the sea storm. Chapter 9, they marvel when he heals the paralytic and when he casts the demon out of the mute man and he's able to speak. I think it's encapsulated the best in Matthew chapter 15 where we read this, this word marvel, this word astonishment, even a bit of fear. Great crowds came to Jesus, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at Jesus' feet, and he healed them so that the crowd marveled. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified God. What's amazing about this text here in Matthew chapter 22, this Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God. There's no supernatural healing going on here. There's no mighty deeds. The words alone are so transformative, so challenging that they marvel as if they saw a healing take place in front of them. They marvel at these words. You see, what Jesus does is he entangles them in their own trap and they can't shake his words. They walk away with a rock in their sandals and they can't get it out. He's put something there that they cannot get over. And No wonder at the end of the chapter, at the end of chapter 22, after the Sadducees and a whole bunch of other groups show up to challenge Jesus, it says in verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word Nor from that day on did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Man, you don't go asking Jesus trapping questions because they end up trapping you. Here's how the trap was meant to work. The trap was meant to work like this. The Pharisees are determined by chapter 22 to get rid of Jesus. And so they go and they team up with their enemies to trap him. You see, there's different groups going on in Jesus' day, different political groups and religious groups. The Pharisees hated what verse 16 calls the Herodians. You see, the Herodians were these totally irreligious Jews 
who were cozied up with King Herod and his courts. And King Herod is the puppet king of Israel from Caesar. So if Caesar's happy, Herod's happy. If Caesar's happy, the Herodians are happy. They're getting rich on this. The Pharisees hated the Herodians, but in order to get rid of Jesus, they'll team up with the enemy. So together they go, Pharisee and Herodian, to ask Jesus a question in verse 17 that with the Herodians and the Pharisees and the crowd present is impossible for Jesus to answer publicly. It's a trap. He can't answer it, it seems. He can't answer it. Here's why. Verse 17, here's the trap. After they butter him up a bit. Oh, you're so true and you, know, you don't tell anyone what they want to hear. So answer us this taxes. Is it lawful? According to the law of Moses, is it lawful to pay taxes to a pagan king named Caesar? Is it lawful? Now it's a trap because under an occupied nation of Israel, these were a heavenly burdened and taxed people. They were getting taxed to the point of starvation. And so there had been many rebellions that had risen up in response to Roman taxation. We even read about one in the Bible in Acts chapter 5. They refer to Judas the Galilean, who before Jesus, about a decade before Jesus, had risen up over taxes, rebelled, we're not going to pay. The rebellion got crushed. They captured Judas the Galilean, his followers, publicly crucified them that said, to say to the world, you don't tell Caesar we don't pay taxes. This is the trap that Jesus is getting set in. The Herodians are there. Here's what the trap is. If Jesus answers, no, don't pay, the Herodians will arrest him on the spot. That plays right into the Pharisees' plans. But if Jesus says, you should pay your taxes, the crowd will mob him and probably kill him on the spots. See, the Pharisees are presenting him an impossible question. But Jesus is Jesus. And he takes an impossible question and he actually answers it by completely redirecting the question. Here's what he does he uses a word in verse 21, and it's a loaded word. It's the word render. It's a payment term, render. We don't really use that much in the, in the English language, although render and surrender, that's the root in there. Render means to give back, literally. Give back, pay back, return to sender. Render, render, give it back. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's saying that we are to take what we have and render it in the right way. Give it back to the source. And the way he uses this word render is marvelous. It shocks them. It changes them. It leaves them with a rock in their sandal and it should leave you and I today with a question in front of us about rendering. Now to understand just how marvelous this word render is and what Jesus is doing here is we've got to realize that rendering has to do with image Rendering has to do with impact. I want to make an impact on the world. Well, rendering's right in there. 
And not only is it image and impact that help us understand what render means, but finally, rendering is an imperative. Image, impact, imperative. It's not a suggestion. Let's open it up. Rendering is about image. You see, Jesus takes their test and he turns it back on them. They're trying to test him and he presents a counter test. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he says in verse 19, he says, knowing their malice, he says, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? And then he says this, he says, show me the coin for the tax. And they bring out the denarius. Now, part of what's going on here is he says, whose likeness and inscription is on the denarius? And the answer is Caesar's. See, on the denarius, it had Caesar's image. And this is part of why this coin was hated by the Jews so much, because they were forbidden in Exodus 20 to make any graven images. There should not be any graven images of God or of anybody. And so the coin that they had to carry around under this occupied Israel to pay their taxes was unclean. It was unholy. It had an image on it and the image of a pagan king. But not only was it the image, but it was also the inscription on the coin. The denarius said in inscription around the coin, Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the divine Augustus, which basically reads, Caesar, son of God. An inscription, a graven image, Here's the son of God, is what that coin said. This is why they hated this coin so much. But what Jesus is doing is he's focusing the question on the image. What image is on this coin, this hated coin? Caesar's. And then he does something amazing. In verse 21, he says, Therefore, and as I said many times, and I'll keep saying it, every time in scripture that you see the word therefore, Pay attention. You've got to ask, what is the therefore there for? See, what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a formula. He's reframing the question. You've answered my test. Whose image is on this coin? If it's Caesar, therefore, give to Caesar. Render to Caesar. Pay back to Caesar. Return to Caesar that which is Caesar's. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's linking the image with ownership. He's saying if there's an image on something, well, clearly that thing is owned by the one whose image is on there. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not saying that the coins are not actually God's. Haggai will say the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. But Jesus is making a point here. Look at the image. The image denotes ownership. But see, it's not about the coin. He wants to make a bigger statement. And this is what blows their minds. That would be my translation of marvel. Blows their minds. See, likeness, image, is a loaded word in Scripture. We hear image, we hear likeness. We think, where have I heard that before? You see, the word likeness is the word icon in Greek. It's a picture, something that shows a picture of something else. You look at an image, an icon, you see a similarity. It's a picture of, it's a photograph of, it's an image of. I was in a doctor's office with Annabelle a number of years ago. 
our eldest daughter. And I, I think she was maybe six or so. And we had one GP for the whole family. And the doctor walked in the office, looked at Annabelle and said, wow, you look like your mom. To which I responded, thanks be to God. <laughs> the point was that you could see the likeness. You could see the similarity. There was a genetic link there. You, you said, I'm looking at the one. It's kind of like I'm looking at the other. And so it is with this idea of image that we're seeing something similar, something that points to an origin. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, right back at the beginning, this language of image and likeness was right there. When God, after he'd made the whole universe, said at the end of creation, at the crowning point of creation, God says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and the birds and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Human beings, male and female, made in the image and likeness of God. You see, what Jesus is saying is the coin has Caesar's likeness on it, his image on it, and therefore, let's consider the, the, the image, the, the coin image, owned by Caesar. But what does that then mean if we are made in the image of God? It's not about the coin. Give the coin to Caesar. Who cares? You have the image and likeness of God on you. You, therefore, are owned by God. And what is owned by God should be rendered to God. Jesus is saying, it's not about the coin. Do you hear? He's twisting the trap. He's entrapping them. He says, why are you so concerned about this coin? You have not given yourselves to God. You are not giving your lives. You are not rendering your lives to the one who has an image and likeness on you. Jesus is not giving us a detailed theology of church and state and its separation. He really isn't. You've got to look at Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. There's other places to look there. What he's doing here is reframing the question, do you know whose image is on you? And do you know what that means? Whoever's image is on you owns you. You are his. So give yourself Back to him. Render. Render to the one whose image has rested on you. Instead of entangling us, he's instead entangling us with the question, whose are you? See, rendering is about image. But rendering is also about impact. See, once we figure out that we've got the image of God on us and what that means about the ownership of our lives and that call to render, the rendering becomes the source of impact. How do I make an impact in the world for good? How do I live out a purpose and meaning in this world? It's about rendering. Once we figure out whose we are, then the job is to render ourselves back to God and enter into the impact that he's intended for us in this world. And we see the contrast to this in verse 18 
when seeing their malice, he says, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Y'all know it's my favorite word. It means actor. Hypocrite, actor. I mean, what he's saying is, if to truly be human is to live as an image bearer of God in the world, to render your life to God so that that image can be on display for the world, then the alternative of that is being an actor. You're not really living a fully human life. If you're not rendering yourself to God, you've become less than human. Because only as we render our lives back to the one who made us, put his image on us, and owns us, do we fully become what we were made to be? We fight against it our whole lives. I want my agenda. I want my way. I want my priorities. But every time we render ourselves to those things, we become a little less human. See, the amazing thing about this idea of image bearing in the world, and I love this, and forgive me if I'm getting a little too much J.R.R. Tolkien on you with this, but here's what I mean. See, ancient Near Eastern kings, when they would conquer a region, they would build images of themselves in that region to remind the the inhabitants of who the king was. So foreign king comes in, conquers a region, or the local king just leaves to do something and leaves images of himself behind so that the whole territory can look and be reminded, okay, There's the king. We know who our king is. What does God do at the end of creation? He builds the cosmos out of nothing. It's all his. And then the crowning moment is he puts puts image bearers into his creation to be a living, walking, breathing reminder to the whole of the cosmos who is the king. You and I, human beings, are meant to be images to the whole of the cosmos. The cosmos is to look at us and go, oh yes, I remember who God is. I remember who the creator is. I remember who the king is. My Tolkien point is this. If the trees could speak, they would walk out of the forest and walk up to you and I and would say, you look like the king. You look like the one that made me. You remind me that there is a king over us, a creator over us, a God who made me, and you are reminding me that my devotion and my worship should go to him. That is our job in this universe, but not just to trees, to everyone, to the whole of creation. We are walking, living images of the creator, the king, our God. And that makes an impact on lives in this world. When we live like image bearers. And the only way we can live as image bearers is if we're rendering ourselves back to the one who put his image on us. You see, the opposite of rendering is acting. But another way you could put it is the opposite of rendering is withholding. Right? The opposite of rendering is not giving back to God, not allowing God to take your life and let it be consecrated all to thee. You know, there's a story, I don't know if it's a true story, 
most preachers like it to be a true story, but we'll tell it anyway, of the, the, the pastor who at year end in his congregation, you know, as he does every year, starts reminding everybody about, you know, there is a year end goal here budget wise, and we've always got a gap to overcome. And we put little things in the bulletin to remind people and keep talking about it to remind everyone that there's a need. Will you consider your generosity? Will you consider how God is calling you to give in this final season of the year to support our ministries and all the rest? Well, this man walks into the pastor's office one year at year end and says, pastor, I just, I've got a problem with this. Because you keep talking about, you know, giving generously and you, we hear about tithes and offerings and certain percentages and the tithe being kind of the baseline 10% to not, not end with, but just kind of work towards as the baseline and then build generosity from there. And he said to the pastor, this doesn't work for me. I make too much money. Like there's no way with my income level I could really realistically tithe that or beyond to the church. Can you help me with this? I need you to help me. I have too much income. I can't possibly do this. And the pastor says, I will help you. Let's pray. Father, would you reduce this man's income to the level where he feels he's able to actually live up to the calling of God in scripture about giving? That's not quite what the man was asking for, but it might be what he gets in the end, wouldn't it? I mean, the truth here is that withholding is the opposite of rendering. When we hold back, and this will hugely deplete and get in the way of our impact in the world. When some of you have heard this story, some of you haven't, when I was on sabbatical in 2007, 2000, no, not 2015, I was on sabbatical, and just two years ago, this is key, and, and I was in England at a monastery praying, and as I prayed, one morning, I just felt the Lord continually placing on my heart this one question. I wrote it in my journal. Will you still adventure with me? And, and it, it came out of nowhere, but it was relentless. And I circled it and surrounded it with text. And I kept praying through it and saying, what does this mean? And I was overwhelmed by this. And I realized what had happened is that I'd got so domesticated where I was. 10 years in Ottawa, we were in a great place. We loved where we were. We loved our life. Everything was fine. But I was not willing to adventure with the Lord anymore. And so later in the morning, I got on the phone, or later in the afternoon, I got on the phone with Monica, who was on the other side of the Atlantic. And I said, oh man, I had a crazy morning in prayer. And she said, me too. And I said, oh, why don't you start? And she said, I was praying this morning. It just was so so overwhelmed with this word adventure. And I said, what? And she said, I just, I feel like we're called to adventure. And I picked up my prayer journal. We are on FaceTime and I showed it to her with that outline, will you still adventure with me? And we both started crying because we knew exactly what this was talking about. I said, I think it's about that search firm that called me a couple weeks ago asking me if I'd be interested in letting my name go forward for this church in Texas. And I told them no, because I was too comfortable here. And she said, I think that's exactly what this is about. And I said, I better call that search firm back. And she said, I think you better. And when we moved here, the piece of art my wife gave me was a beautiful picture that said, are you ready to adventure? See, rendering 
can look in so many different ways. There's all kinds of enemies of rendering that creep into our lives. But at some point, the question is put before us, will we render? Do you want to make an impact in the world? Then you have to render yourself to God. I have to render myself to God. See, rendering is about image, it's about impact, and finally, in closing, rendering is an imperative. It's it's not an option, sorry. Uh, Verse 21, Jesus says, render, and it's in the imperative form. It's a command. He's telling us, this is the way it is. It's not an option for a Christian. The Lord is commanding this response from each and every person. And this is going to look different in each person's life, but it is an imperative. Every one of us is called to live this kind of life. It it drives me crazy, for example, when people try to diminish their call in this world. You know, they'll say, oh, well, I'm just doing this or I'm just doing that. Do you know the impact that your life can have? Someone said to me not long ago, oh, I'm just a deacon. You know, as if, you know, being a priest is all that there is, right? I'm just a deacon. And I wanted to say, you know what? There's no such thing as just a deacon. You know you get to stand up at the end of the service as a deacon and give the dismissal? The dismissal. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Do you know that that's an imperative as well? It's not just a, hey, have a great day watching the Cowboys. That is a command. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. The deacon gets to say that every Sunday. The priest doesn't get to say that. And I get, I get crazy when people say, oh, I'm just a lay person. I'm just a lay person. Really? You mean you're the recipients of that command at the end of the service? Go. The mission field's right there. Go. See what Jesus is going to do in your life today. See, we're all called. I guess you could say at the end of the day, I could just say, well, I'm just a priest. There's nothing special there. We're all called. We're all called to render our lives to God. And the amazing thing as I close is that we cannot do this on our own. You see, we are fallen image bearers. Sin crept into the garden. Sin corrupted these image bearers. But Jesus comes and redeems us. What Jesus does in his coming is he comes as the true image bearer to free us from all that's broken within us. Colossians chapter 1 says these words. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, Jesus comes as the true image bearer, the full image bearer, and says, I'm going to release you. I'm going to free you to finally stop being fallen image bearers and be redeemed image bearers in this world. And it's why... We need to trust the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to do the heavy lifting. Last Sunday, as we baptized all those candidates, that oil on their heads, in baptism you are sealed with the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever. That's the new inscription on your life. I want to make an impact on this world for good. And so do you. So we need to render. Rendering to God is about knowing whose image we're made in. And therefore, who owns us? It's about understanding that impact in this world will only come as we render ourselves back to the one who placed his image on us. And finally, rendering 
isn't an option. It's an imperative. This girl born on the side of the road in rural Nigeria, born in such poverty, so sick, grew up and renamed herself Gloria in order to desire to live a life that would glorify God. Went to seminary, married a priest, but kept asking how would she glorify God by offering her life. And then one day she discovered a neglected orphanage in town. And Gloria brought those children home to her own home. And more and more of them came. Her husband became a bishop. And as he would travel away, he would come home and say, wow, Gloria, there are only 16 children here living here, along with our own kids last week. I return and now there's 22 kids living here. But she was relentless. Today, Archbishop Ben, who's preached here before, and his wife, Gloria Kawashi, are the official parents of 300 adopted children who've lived with them in the bishop's residence in Joss, Nigeria over the years. Many of the children have previously been abused and traumatized. Some are disabled. The Kawashis put them through school. Give them the Kawashi name. So when they are grown, those children go out into the world no longer as orphans. They have a bishop as a father. And they have a true Gloria as their mother. Because Gloria decided to render her life to God. And when they heard Jesus' words, they marveled. Do we marvel today? Let's not just marvel. Let's render. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.